it's good to be back with you guys. Um, um, I feel like you guys gave me a really bad spot. I wish I was looking that way. So you're going to be distracted looking over my shoulders by that beauty. Uh, but it is an awesome spot. So hopefully you guys have enjoyed it. Um, it's been on a, a, awesome for me to be here and just enjoyable with you guys. Um, it's been good to just have conversations, catch up with old friends yesterday. I'll be leaving shortly after the message. So thank you for letting me be a part of this camp and to spend some time with you learning about unity and specifically the importance of it uh, for a healthy Christian community. And I hope you understand that not only from what you've been learning for the last six months from Ephesians, but even from Thursday night and then uh, what the message will be like tomorrow. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians and we'll be in Ephesians chapter four for this morning. If you look around, a world longs for unity. The cry of tolerance is the cry of our generation, isn't it? Everybody wants to experience tolerance and you want people to tolerate you and they expect you to tolerate them. Just think about the bumper stickers that speak to the cry for unity. The peace sign, the most obvious one, the peace sign wants unity. It wants peace or things like don't hate, appreciate. Anything violence can do, peace can do better. I'm sure you've seen all of these at some point. You must be the change you wish to see in the world. Choose peace. Peace brings the world together. Give peace a chance. Or as one famous person said, why can't we all just get along? Right? And finally, coexist. You guys have seen that? Coexist. All those different bumper stickers that are all around us scream the same message. The world wants to be unified, but this is not a new cry. It's not as if it just happened in the last 50 years with our current culture. The tower of Babel in Genesis 11 was a cry for unity. God said spread and people said, no, people wanted to stay united and connected to one another. And while the world screams for unity, the opposite is the case in reality. If you look at the world, the world is divided and global events demonstrate to that reality. Just think about some statistics. Our world is at odds with each other. In the last century, there have been 265 wars, 265 wars. One historian did a a little catalog since 3600 BC. Okay. So 5,600 year history. Since that time, the world has only known peace for 292 years. From all the records that we have, historical records, just under 300 years of peace in 5,600 years. In that time, they calculate 14,351 wars have happened. So while Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, you know, you're going back thousands and thousands of years, we've had almost 14 and a half thousand wars in that time. Since the United Nations was formed, which was an an organization established for peace after the World War II, right? You know how many wars we've had since then? 250 wars since the UN was established, a peacekeeping agency. In other words, whatever man attempts to do to accomplish peace, man fails. We cannot attain at peace. And just look at our current American climate. Okay, do we have to go beyond the White House to understand that the politics are divisive? 
the presidency of, of our current president, Trump, is very divisive. I feel like the politicians can't unite on anything except for one thing, the collusion of Russia. That's the only thing they all agree on, right? That the Russians are up to something not good for America. Everything else is dividing them, whether it's the immigration or the Black Lives Matter movement. Anything else that is politically charged is a divisive movement. What unites you guys? Are you united because y'all eat sala, semichki, and suhariba? Is that kind of what, what, what Americans hate? Now, if you're an American here and if you want to try those things, I caution you against all three of those things. But you may enjoy it. That's the unification of the Russian or the Slavic community. What unites you guys? I know you belong to the same church. Family members, lots of intermarriages here. I get all that. But what ultimately unites you and holds you together? Yesterday morning, we did talk about Christ is ultimately that bond of unity. This morning, I'd like us to look at the practical working out of that unity. What does it look like in a Christian community? And the answer comes from Ephesians chapter four, the first six verses. Paul writes, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is one of the most intense passages in the new Testament in regard to Christian unity. And we'll walk through this and hopefully try to understand what does it mean for us on a daily basis and then as a community of believers who claim to love one another and follow the same Christ. When you look at Ephesians as a whole, as a book, I would say one word can characterize the theme of this book and that is the word triumph. The book of Ephesians is about triumph. I think the thesis verse or the main verse that captures the whole message is Ephesians chapter uh, three, verse 10, Ephesians three, 10. So if you want to just jot it down for future reference, I think this is the main purpose statement of this book. So Paul says in verses eight and nine, I'm the least of all the saints. This grace was given to me. I'm preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, the unfathomable riches of Christ. What an amazing grace that I get to preach the gospel to people. That's verse eight, verse nine. That is, I'm bringing to light the administration of the mystery, which has been hidden for ages in God, who is the creator of all things. In other words, this message, this gospel, the unification of Jew and Gentile is a new thing. It was a mystery in the past. Now it's been brought to light. Here's the verse, verse 10. Why, why is Paul engaged in this mission? Why did the gospel come into human history? So that the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So that the manifold wisdom of God and the image here is a kaleidoscope, the multifaceted wisdom of God, the multiple expressions of God's wisdom can now be displayed through the church. We are the agents through whom God is demonstrating his wisdom. Who is watching? The end of verse 10, 
the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, the church is where the drama of redemption is happening. We are the theater of this story and the cosmic rulers, the powers, the angels, the demons, Satan, the cosmic creation is watching the church. And when they look at the church, the church is supposed to display the manifold wisdom of God. Ultimately, when you read the whole book, especially in chapter six, the message is this God wins. Ultimately God is victorious. And that victory is demonstrated in the church through the church that Jesus Christ is the savior. He accomplished salvation on the cross. Anyone who believes in him as savior is brought into this community of the church. And then in this church context, the power of God, the wisdom of God is being displayed. It's been put forward in a theater where the world, the, the universe, let me say this way, the universe, the cosmic rulers are watching. God is using us to display his wisdom, his power to ultimately even convey to Satan. I win. And the Christian life is what proves that I win. That's the message. And then you turn the page and you get to chapter four. And Paul says, therefore, therefore, in light of the fact that God wins, and then on top of that, how does God win? When if you just recall the first three chapters from your previous study in Ephesians, you remember that you were transformed from death to life. You were elevated from earth to heaven. That's chapter two. You were snatched from the grasp of Satan and you were brought under the reign of God. You were saved. You were sanctified. You were sealed. You've been reconciled with the Trinity and with each other. That is what happened to you. That is your position in Christ. And now Paul says, therefore, the reason we know that the first three chapters is all about who you are in Christ is because in those chapters, there's only one command in chapters three through six. There are 40 commands. That's why the therefore in verse one is so critical as a turning point. This is who you are. First chapter, the first three chapters. Now this is what you're supposed to be like. This is what you're supposed to do or live. And the first thing that Paul goes after is unity. Do you get that? That of all the things that Paul could have started talking about, this is who you are as a per person in Christ. This is God accomplishing his work through you. The first thing that Paul wants to accent is unity in the church. That is the value we have to place and assess to unity. It's not something that's an afterthought. It's not the last thing you add to your Christian experience. In Paul's mind, it's the first thing that a Christian needs to consider. And Paul builds his argument in chapters four through six around the simple single word walk. You've heard that before. I'm sure in chapter two, verse 10, he introduces it. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And the next time he uses the word walk is here for one. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk. And so he says, okay, you were created. You were saved. This magnum opus chapter two was verses one through 10 of salvation. You were created for good works. And then he takes a pause. And then for one, he says, this is what I'm talking about. It's as if the first step as you walk, the first step that you take as a believer is a step toward unity. That is the first thing that we do. He will refer to walking six more times. And seven verse 17, he'll say, walk in holiness. 
In chapter 5, verse 2, he'll say, walk in love. Chapter 5, verse 8, he'll say, walk in the light. And then 5.15, he'll say, walk in wisdom. Those six references from 4.1 all the way to 5.15 talk about the Christian walk. That is our life. And the first step is this call to unity. So I'd like to look at this idea of unity. Consider what does it mean for Christians to walk in unity? And the first component of that is there is a call to unity. And that's verse 1. I implore you, I beg you, I urge you to walk in the manner of the calling with which you have been called. Two times Paul uses the word call. Then in verse four, he uses the word call twice again. It is about a call. It's about a a, a expectation from God for us to live in a certain way. And Paul says, I am a prisoner of the Lord. This is the second time he refers to himself as a prisoner. He did that back in chapter three, verse one. And now he reminds there, remember, I am a prisoner because of you, because I brought the gospel to you and I was arrested and he's in prison in Rome when he writes Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. And Paul says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord, but remember, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. In other words, Paul never divorces his own identity to being connected to Christ. No matter what constraints you have in your life right now, no matter what restrictions you feel like are placed upon you, whether they're financial or relational, no matter what they are, Paul says, I'm in prison and I'm still belonging to the Lord. In other words, as I said yesterday, our identity is always linked to Christ. Never elevate your situation in life, whatever it is, and it will change for the rest of your life. You know that. Never elevate your situation above your spiritual identity. Never think of yourself as, well, I'm always struggling, or this is who I am. None of those restrictions can limit you to do what God expects you to do. And so Paul says this, I expect you to walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. And the imagery Paul uses here is the imagery of scales. There's an expectation, there's a call, and there's a worthiness. And it's as if you have to adjust your life to your calling. You are a Christian. Now, does your life actually balance like on scales to what you are called? You're called a Christian. And so Paul says, I'm appealing to you. But using the word call four times in these few verses, Paul is actually alluding back to the Old Testament idea. Abraham was called by God. Remember that? Genesis 12. Israel was called by God. You have multiple examples. God calls people to himself. And then you got Romans 8, 29. Those whom he predestined, these he, what? Called. Again, you have this idea that there's a call on the Christian life. And so Paul plays off of this Old Testament notion, brings it into his context and says, you are called and you're supposed to live in a certain way. That's the expectation. Bring up your life to the standard to which you have been called. And this begins with unity. So there's a call to unity. Secondly, there is a display of unity. And that's verses two to three. We are to display this unity. And this really takes us into the concept of the how of unity. How do we as believers live in unity? What does it look like on a daily basis? That's verses two through three. So the first thing that Paul says here is with all humility. 
Humility is the first component through which we display our unity. And literally that means think like a slave. Think like a slave. In the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman context, slaves were the lowest of the low in the social structure. Humility wasn't respected. They did the menial tasks. They cleaned the bathrooms. They picked up after people. Humility was not a characteristic that a noble Roman or Greek individual would be proud to have said of himself or herself. You don't want to be, say, be someone saying about you, that's a humble person. Christianity enters the world and flips that concept upside down. In ancient writings, you can do some of those. Humility wasn't positively viewed until you begin to read the Christian works. And now Christian, the Christian culture, the Christian world elevates humility to a noble characteristic. And so Paul says this with all humility. How do you walk in unity? First of all, it takes humility. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to what? To serve. That's the idea. In Philippians chapter two, I'm sure you're familiar with this passage. Philippians chapter two, Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit or empty vain desires for your own prideful ambition, but with humility of mind, that is one word, thinking like a slave, regard or consider one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Just like Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a slave. That's the idea of thinking like a slave who is a humble individual. You and I are to be humble if we are to be unified. And the words that Paul uses here in Philippians chapter 2 have to do with drawing attention. So think of yourself as, or think of others as more important. It's the idea of noticing somebody. So if you're in high school, this is really easy for you. If you're not in high school, think back when you were in high school and a guy notices a girl, a girl notices a guy and they stand out to you in a crowd, right? There's just this weird connection. Magnetism happens. You notice somebody. As we get older, we notice other things. For example, I notice people who are taller than me. I'm 5'8", not super gifted by God in height. But, and you know, it's funny. I'm staying in the oak cabin, and it's the first time in my life I hit my head on a little door area. Because it's like, you know, as Jan called it, Hobbitville. And so I had to duck down for the first time in my life to go through a door. Um, but tall people, you know, those of us who are a little bit shorter, we notice tall people. And you, I'm sure you do that as well. I remember in seminary, we had a student who was a basketball player for UCLA when he was in college. He was 7'2", monster of a man. And uh, he had to sit on two chairs in class because he was that big. You know, one couldn't hold him. But every time he walked into the classroom, he had to duck because he was so tall. We always noticed him. He had multiple rings on his basketball college days and so on. Um, but you notice tall people. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Numbers 13, 33. You guys remember the story, um, 
Joshua sends the 12 spies. I'm sorry, Moses sends the 12 spies. And um, Joshua is one of the 12. And so they go to Canaan, they figure it out and they come back. And then, you know, 10 of the 12 people are negative. Remember that? Only two, Jacob and Caleb, uh, uh, Joshua and Caleb are positive about the experience. Like, yeah, let's go. We got this. And then the 10 are whining and complaining. And this is what they say. We were like ants before them. The Nephilim, that's the word there. So they saw these tall people and they felt like little ants. I love that verse, the comparison there. Sometimes I feel like that with tall people. I'm like a little measly ant around them. But we notice things. That's the whole point here. Paul says, you as a humble individual, you notice other people. Their needs supersede your needs. Their priorities are more important than your priorities. It's like when you notice something just gets your attention, that's your Christian life. If you're a humble person, you notice everyone but yourself. That's the idea of being a humble individual. And then Paul says in verse four, and you prefer them. In other words, you, in other words, you zoom in onto their needs and all you see is how you can meet that need. The word there is scopic, microscopic. That's where we get that word. In other words, you take a microscope and you want to see something that's smaller. You zoom in into that detail. You zoom in into the details of the people's lives and you do whatever you can to meet those needs. That is the manifestation of humility. You always look for the needs of others. In other words, you don't carry around a full-sized mirror with you, only seeing yourself. You wear glasses of humility. And back in Ephesians four, Paul says with all humility, emphasizing the highest degree of humility, all sorts, all degrees of humility is to characterize our lives. Simply put, you are not overly impressed with yourself. You're not that great. No matter what you've accomplished in life, you're not that great. This is not me judging you. This is humility asking you to think that way. You are not that great. And is it worth it to live a life like that with that mindset? Well, according to Isaiah chapter 66, it is. In Isaiah 66, we read about the individual to whom God extends his attention. Verse 2. To this one, I will look. The idea being to this one, I will fix my attention on. It's as if God is looking that way and all of a sudden he's drawn this way. This is the kind of person that gets God's attention. Who? To him who is humble. That's the first thing listed. Who's contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. You want God's attention on your life? Be humble. And that leads to humility. How do you do this? Well, the next word, gentleness. Gentleness. This is the opposite of roughness. It has to do with being kind, having self-restraint, having self-control. It's the proper use of anger. There are appropriate times to be angry. You can look at Jesus' life. He was angry at sin. He was angry at injustice. He was angry at abuse of people. Remember all that. There are appropriate times for Christians to be angry at injustice. But when it touches your life, 
you have all gentleness, all self-control, all restraint. When you're wronged, you don't plan vengeance. When you're treated unfairly, you are gentle. And this kind of response, humility, gentleness requires the third characteristic, patience. With all patience. And the best definition of patience, I think, is this. Long-suffering without losing hope. Long-suffering without losing hope. You know that things will be made right. Ultimately, everything will be made right. This word is used to refer to people who are suffering grief and enduring trials and they just keep going and going and going. It refers to a city that is under siege and the city has been starved and people are just hoping and waiting for some kind of army to come and free them. It's an individual who bears insults, bears provocation. How do you do that? Next phrase, showing tolerance for one another in love. That's the fourth characteristic. You are tolerant of other people. You put up with people. But love is the foundation for that tolerance. We're talking about practically tolerating each other's differences. You don't have to tolerate too much when people think exactly like you do. Right? Think about it. When people want what you want, there's no tolerance required. You guys are in sync. You're going in the same direction. If everybody wants in and out, guess what? There's no fighting in the car. Everybody wants in and out. But if somebody wants Taco Bell, I'm not sure why that would happen, but somebody wants Taco Bell, then there's like, I want Taco Bell. I want it. No, 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 no. I have nephews. I understand how that works. But if everybody's thinking the same way, you don't need tolerance. In other words, the implication is tolerate people who think differently who are different than you. It means you're holding yourself back from either judging, criticizing, or maintaining your own way when differences arise. You're putting up with different faults in people. Does that mean that you never speak up? No, that's verse 15. That's why it's there. You speak the truth in love. There are times when we do have to speak up when differences actually create disunity. And that's the context of verse 15. So Paul says, this is how you maintain unity. Humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance. And then verse three, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Make sure you don't miss this. Being diligent to keep. Keep unity. It doesn't say create. Why? Because in chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Jesus himself is our peace. He created peace. uh, uh, Positionally, peace is there. Now, the responsibility of the believer is to preserve that peace, to keep that peace. And it takes all humility, all gentleness, all patience, all tolerance founded on love for us to preserve that peace. Strive to preserve it. Being diligent. It's an aggressive term. 
It's zealousness, it's eagerness, it's expending all your effort, all your energy, whatever it takes to keep peace. Is this how you think about your Christian community, your church? Whatever it takes, we're going to maintain peace in this community. If it means I never have to maintain my own way, that's what it's going to be. If it means I'm always going to sacrifice for others, that's what it's going to be. To maintain peace. And Paul says, preserving peace, it's holding on to it like your life depends on it. Uh, when we were driving up here, I'm sure you saw the sign like I did, a rodeo. Did you guys see that? I don't know what that means. We can maybe ask Dave later where that takes place, where they bring in the bulls. But there's a place in Austin, Fort Worth, I'm sorry, Fort Worth, Texas, that has a rodeo every weekend. Imagine that life. Every single weekend there's a rodeo. That's what they pride themselves. That's the only thing happening in that town. And I've been to a couple of them in that city. And I've seen, you, you might've seen on TV or maybe you've seen a real rodeo. But the person getting on the bull is holding on to the reins and he's holding on for his life. And the goal is eight seconds. That's it. Most don't last eight seconds. Two, three, four seconds. Some do, and then they win. But you just imagine that scene of being on a bull, holding on for your life, because if you get flipped, guess what? You have like three seconds to get out of the way before the bull takes you down. That's the word that Paul uses here. It's to hold on to something so aggressively, so zealously, like your life depends on it. Are you holding on to unity in the church with that aggression? That zeal, because that's the expectation. And Paul says, preserving the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It's the same word that Paul uses of himself when he is bound to a Roman soldier. And the same shackles that held him in prison, Paul says, you are shackled to one another. Who's that bond? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our bond of peace. So then why does unity not always exist? What happens? Because that's great. I mean, we understand this. We want this. Why doesn't it happen? Answer simple. James 4. Verses 1 through 3. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts? among you is not the source, your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and you don't have. So you commit murder. You are envious and you can't get it. So you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motive so that you may spend it on your own desires. The answer to what prevents unity is simple. James four, one through three. It's because you want something that another person doesn't want. And you fight and you murder, he says, to get it. And then when you do ask God for it, God knows your motives. It's because you want it for yourself, not to create unity and peace. That's the problem. So Paul ultimately is saying, get rid of selfish ambition. Stop caring mostly about yourself. And then you will have unity in the church. Unity will blossom. Unity will flourish because you are bound together by the Holy Spirit. That's the display of our unity. The call to unity, that's the context and that's the standard. 
And then the display, we looked at it in verses two and three. And finally, the foundation of our unity. What is the foundation of our unity? And we see that in verses four through six. Seven times in verses four through six, Paul uses the word one. One. One, 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 one. Over and over and over to stress the unity that is to characterize the church. And so here, Paul identifies seven pillars, the foundational pillars of our unity. The first one is one body. That's verse four. There is one body. Have you ever thought about the lunacy of getting in the way of yourself? So if I wanted to write something and all of a sudden my left hand throws it away. You're about to go get the ball, volleyball tournament yesterday, and you know, you're going, going, and then what happens? Your left hand just kind of smacks your right hand. And just think about the lunacy of yourself, you yourself getting in the way of your own self. You're walking and your left leg trips up your right leg intentionally. I'm talking about intentionality here. That's crazy. That, that's a psychotic individual. Paul says that is the Christian life because we're one body. And when one member gets in the way of another member, that's what's happening. It's lunacy. Why in the world would a single body try to harm itself? So where Paul begins is with this logical argument. You are all one body. So get along. Stop fighting your own self. Paul refers back specifically to chapter two when he says there's been one body created. Jew and Gentile are now one in the church. We're united in one body, but the second pillar is one spirit. Verse four again, and one spirit. According to first Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, one spirit brings us into the one body. So he is the means of us entering this body. It's the same Holy spirit that we have yesterday. We talked about according to Romans eight, nine through 11. If you don't have the spirit, you're not a Christian. You don't belong to Christ. You're not united to Christ. So it's that same spirit that all of us possess individually. And then corporately as a, as a church, it's the same spirit who grants us access to the father, who guides us into truth, who convicts us, who comforts us, who sanctifies us, who seals us, who prays on our behalf, who gives us spiritual gifts and who empowers us. It's that same spirit who accomplishes all that and more according to the new Testament. So he is operating in our life to make us more like Christ. So why would we undermine his efforts when he's doing the same exact thing in all of us? Why would we get in the way of that? The third pillar is one hope, one hope again in verse four, one hope of your calling. We are all holding on to the same future hope. Everybody's trying to get to heaven right? Not by our works through Christ's sacrifice. I understand that. But our goal is heaven. If it was this life, then you've really messed up because Paul calls you a fool in first Corinthians 15. We are of all the people who are most to be pitied because we're sacrificing the temporary benefits of this life, all the pleasures. And if you don't care about heaven, then why are you doing that? 
If you're not aspiring towards resurrection and towards Christ-likeness in eternity with him, this makes no sense. This choice, you being in, in the church, makes no sense whatsoever. Unless you're headed towards resurrection, towards glory, towards heaven. That is our single hope. And Paul calls Jesus our hope in 1 Timothy 1.1. So in other words, it's hope that is a destination, but it's the person at that destination that we're most looking forward to. The reason we love to come home is not so much about the building, because the buildings change in our lifetime. It's because the people who are represented, who are associated with that building. Isn't that the case? When you go away on a business trip for two weeks or three weeks or maybe a week and you long to see your family, it's because of who is represented in that home. Our destination isn't just heaven. It's Christ. That's why Paul calls him our hope in 1 Timothy 1.1. And so we long for that. And Paul goes right next to that. Verse five, one Lord. It goes from one hope to one Lord. Back in chapter two, verse 12, Paul says this. Remember, there's a time in your life when you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were stranger to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in this world. But now everything changed. Now you have hope. And now you have, verse 5, one Lord. According to chapter 1, verse 13, we have been blessed through Jesus. 112, oh, that's 1 3, I'm sorry, 1 3. 112 is we have hope in Jesus. 2.13, we have been brought close to God through Jesus. 2.6, we have been resurrected with Jesus. 2.6, we have been seated with Jesus in heaven. 3.6, our inheritance is in Jesus. 3.18, we have Jesus living in our hearts. 3.19, we have the love of Jesus within us. 4.32, we have been forgiven through Jesus. And 5.8, we are light in Jesus. All that is from Ephesians, the function and the work of Jesus in our lives. That's one Lord. In other words, our entire spiritual existence revolves and engages Jesus Christ, our Lord. One master. If you have the same boss, and I know some of you work for the same company here. If you have the same boss, you're both trying to please that same employer, right? So you're not going to in any way harm that employer, if that's who you're working for, you're not going to undermine the other person. If it's a unity, uh, if it's a team approach, that's the idea. We have one master, one Lord who is over us and who we're trying to please. And then Paul says one faith, one faith is our fifth pillar on which unity is founded. Jude one, three says that we have a common salvation a faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. So there's this objective knowledge that we have all believed the gospel. Let's call it simply the gospel that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. And until you recognize that you are a sinner, that you have been fighting God your entire life, and that there is no way for you to be reconciled to God apart from Jesus Christ bridging that chasm. And he's the one who died on the cross for you. And if you believe in him, you will be forgiven of your sins. You'll be welcomed into his community, into his ultimately eternal home. That's John 14. That's the gospel message. And so we will be forever with the Lord. All that it takes is for you to confess and repent from your sins. That's what we have believed. And that gets 
expanded and explained in the rest of the Bible. And we have one book that we read probably every day. And we definitely hear preaching from it every Sunday. In other words, this is our authority. This is what we live by. All of us as believers, that's the one faith idea is we have an objective doctrine that we all hold on to. We have signed that same document, that same, you can say declaration of independence for the sake of July 4th celebration, right? We have the same document that we subscribe to the faith, the gospel, God's word. So if that's the case, why would there be disunity? Well, because we are not all there yet. We're still going. And that's what verse 13 is all about. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. In other words, yes, we subscribe to the same document. Yes, we love the same book. But our knowledge of it isn't as perfect as it one day will be. We're still moving towards that final understanding of scripture that will be perfectly unified. And until then, Paul says, you've been given a gift. You have people in the church who are teachers, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and they are equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. In other words, they're encouraging us, helping us identify our gifts and then deploy them for the benefit of the church and the maturity until we attain the unity of the faith. That's why we're not unified yet. We're still moving forward. But remember, being diligent to maintain unity. Putting in all our effort to get there. And then Paul brings in a sixth pillar back in verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. If you've been baptized, you all have publicly displayed the same exact message. I've been dead with Christ and I've been resurrected with Christ. Same exact message. That's all baptism is. It's a public display of what happened in your heart. You've recognized that Christ's death accomplished something for you. So you died to yourself and now you live with him. Ultimately, baptism is about identification with Christ. It's taking a stand with Christ. That's what it meant in the first century. And you had to be willing to die if you were to be associating with Christ. And you can see that all over the New Testament. The book of Acts catalogs the first, the history of the first church. In every single chapter, except for two chapters, there's persecution. Every single chapter. Chapter 10, there's no persecution because that is a private meeting between Peter and Cornelius. Remember that story? It's a closed door meeting. No persecution there. Chapter 15 is a closed door meeting between all the apostles, the leaders of the church. Again, closed door meeting. Every other chapter that has Christians outside of some closed door meeting has persecution. You had to be willing to die for Christ if you were to associate with Christ. Baptism is identification with Christ. And if you're a believer, you have been baptized. It's a command. It's something that you are expected to do. And so Paul says, you have one baptism. And finally, the seventh pillar is verse seven, one God and father of our Lord, who is over all and through all and in all. Verse six, rather. One God, that's our final pillar. Paul refers to God's sovereignty, God's omnipotence, and God's omnipresence in that one verse. God's all-powerful, God's all-knowing, and God's all-present. And that's the God we serve. 
And that's the God we have to do with. And we will give an account. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. One day we will all give an account. And Paul appeals to God and says, the reason you and I are to be unified with each other is because ultimately we have one God who is over us and in us and through us and all in all. That's the God we serve. That's the basis for our unity. But don't miss this. Paul is bringing in the entire Trinity into this discussion. Verse four, one spirit. Verse five, one Lord. Verse six, one God, the father. Spirit, Jesus, God, the father. The Trinity is now present in Paul's argument for unity. You have to be impacted by this simple truth that John 17 is Jesus's final prayer before he goes to the cross. The last prayer that he offers in John 17, four times asks for God to unite the believers four times of all the things to be asking right before he goes to the cross. What's foremost on his mind is our unity. That's how valuable unity is. Do you get that? And then Paul says, so be diligent to preserve it, to keep it, whatever it takes, because Jesus said, God, make them unified just as we are. 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 So the, so Jesus died for our unity. The Holy spirit empowers our unity and then God keeps us unified. Why? 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 Why all this? Why this unity? Why the call to unity? Next verse. But to each one of us, grace or gift was given according to the measure of Christ's gift from unity to individuality in a single change of a verse. The reason we maintain unity is because each of us are individuals with individual gifts measured out by Christ. According to his own purposes, every single one of us has been given a gift that is tailor-made for you. I was talking to Pastor John MacArthur once in the, and I was, before I was preaching on this passage a couple years back, and I just wanted to ask him, how do you think about spiritual giftedness? Is this like, okay, somebody has a gift of teaching, preaching, giving, leadership, administration, music, the 18 gifts in the New Testament. He says, that's probably not the best way to think about giftedness. He said, it seems that when God formed us, our personalities, and then saved us, there's been this individualized composition of each believer, and you and I are all a blend of certain gifts. So somebody is more of a teacher, but then that person also enjoys giving because God has given him or her the ability to make money and they find joy in giving. And others are great and preaching, but also is very compassionate. In other words, you've got multiple gifts interacting with each other, creating a unique person. That's why verses 15 and 16 are so true. Because Paul says this, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects to him who is the head Christ, 
from whom the whole body is being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causing the growth of the body, building up itself in love. Do you see the emphasis on individual, each part working together? That's the idea. The reason that you are indispensable in this community, in this season of your life, it's because God uniquely formed you and shaped you so that you would be that individual joint, that individual part working together, contributing to the body operating, functioning appropriately. So there is only one of you. That's it. Even if you're a preacher and there's four preachers or 10 preachers in this group, there's only one of you because you're uniquely formed by God. And you either believe this promise or you reject it. That Jesus Christ personally tailor made you for the benefit of the church. Therefore, if you're not functioning, you are hurting the body. You're harming the unity of the church. So the reason we work so hard to maintain that unity is because we're individuals. And we need to figure out how to fit this way, this way. How do you fit? How do you make it work? It's one body, one operation. Do you get that? And that's why we put in all this effort in God's wonderful providence. He made you for this season of life in this community. If you're committed to this church, this is where you belong. If you're a member, you're a member. This is where you belong. Sure, you can switch your membership. I get the freedoms of that. But until you do, your life as a Christian is all here. All here. And you and I are responsible to fulfill this obligation. I'm reminded of a story of a young man who was about to graduate from college. And he was excited. He came from a wealthy home. And he knew, and he told his father the sports car that he wanted. And they went inside at a dealership multiple times. And so he expected that his graduation gift would be the sports car. So his father calls him in to his office, congratulates him after the graduation, and gives him a, a gift, a little box. So this man opens it and opens the box, and he finds a Bible. And he's confused, and he gets upset. And he says, Dad. You know what I want. You know what I've been wanting for all these years. Why would you give me a Bible? So he storms out, leaves the house, and kind of moves away and starts his own career. Many years later, he recognizes the way he left his father, and so he decides to come home to make things right. But before he could get there, his father passed away. And so he goes home, he gets the will, and that his father left everything to him. And so he comes home to kind of settle the affairs, and he goes back to the house, goes back to the office, and he sees that book, the Bible, that he left behind. And of course, emotions overwhelm him. Tears begin to stream down his face. And he opens it and starts flipping through it and goes to Matthew chapter 7 and sees the verse underlined. You know how to give gifts to your children. Even more so, your heavenly father will give you a gift. And of course, this relationship of father-son overwhelms him. And then something falls out of the Bible. A key with the tag to the dealership of that car. Because he was so 
upset that the gift came in a different package than what he expected. He forfeited years and years of enjoying that sports car that he wanted and was waiting for him at the lot. You might be saying, why didn't God make me a preacher? Why didn't God make me a musician? Why didn't God make me somebody who can make money and give to the church? You have this expectation of a gift that you wanted and you got a different package and you've been neglecting to use it. You set it aside on the shelf and it's there all these years. Gifts from God are tailor-made, perfectly suited for you. And they may come in a different package than what you expect. But God says, you have a gift. Use it to maintain, preserve, and foster the unity in the church. Ultimately, if you are united, you can't imagine what God will do through you. Because chapter three ends in that way. Right before Paul goes after unity, he says this, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Paul sets you up for unity. God can do amazing things and it all begins with your unity. Let's pray. Lord God, we are mindful that the entire Trinity is working hard to preserve our unity. And I ask that we as believers, as your children, would invest the effort necessary to maintain unity. We thank you for Jesus who died for us, who brought us into this new organization, new organism called the church, and we're grateful to be a part of it. And now I pray for this specific church that as they move forward, as they pursue evangelism and ministry in Sacramento area, that you would bless them, that you would do amazing things, far more than what they can even imagine sitting here today, what you can do through them. And we know that it can only be done through your power, through your Holy Spirit, as you maintain the unity in this community. We pray this because we want amazing things to be done to the glory of Jesus Christ through Grace Hill Church. Amen.